The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let's continue to worship God by hearing from His Word. This morning's passage is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since today is Christmas, I would draw our thoughts to the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even though this holiday is a madman tradition, you really don't know the day of Jesus' birth. Nevertheless, it is appropriate to reflect upon the incarnation, really any Lord's Day. And our passage today actually ties with what we have been going through in the book of Leviticus. What we've seen in Leviticus is that the only way into the presence of God is through a high priest who offers up that sacrifice for sin. Well, that is what Jesus is. He is our high priest. And in order for him to be our high priest, Hebrews says he had to be made like his brothers in every way except for sin. He had to become incarnate. He had to take on a human nature to himself in order to represent us men before God. And that's why the incarnation is eminently important and greatly matters. Now today, what I actually want to focus in on is an aspect of the incarnation that doesn't get talked about very often. And that is that our Lord Jesus is sympathetic with our sufferings, that not only did Jesus suffer for us, he took on a human body to suffer for us, but he took on a human body in order to suffer with us. That's what we see in Hebrews. This makes him sympathetic to our weaknesses. So let's read Hebrews 4, 14 through 15, or through 16 rather. Let's give our attention to God's word. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. In time of need. Amen. This concludes the reading of God's Word. May God now be pleased to add His blessing to it. Well, there can be a tendency in our circles to focus on reacting to what's called antinomianism. Antinomianism means against law. Uh, that is, in our day in American Christianity, there's people that prayed the prayer, signed the card, walked the aisle but have no change in their life and think that they are Christians. They live like the devil. There's no change. And that is obviously not true. Those whom God saves, there is a changed life. But in reacting to this, uh, we have become accustomed to emphasizing God's law and the need for holiness. And while it is true that Christians must keep God's law and walk in holiness, in this reaction, we can give the impression that God won't help us in this. 
the only or primary help he'll give us is to motivate us with the threats of the law. If you don't deal with your sin, you're going to go to hell. And after we've fallen into sin, don't think about even coming to Jesus. You're not going to get sympathy. The only thing you should experience is condemnation. The only thing you're going to hear from him is the law. You got it wrong. God's not happy with you. Now repent and get it right. And if you continue in this sin, you're not going to make it to heaven. God is watching you. The pressure is on. The Bible says that one of the reasons that Jesus became incarnate was to experience our sufferings and sorrows in order to be a merciful and sympathetic high priest. The author of Hebrews says that this says this so that we have confidence to draw near to Jesus, our high priest, at all times, even, even when we have fallen into sin, even in our struggles. In fact, that is the answer to our sin. You're struggling with sin? Perhaps you're not a believer. You've been self-deceived. What is the answer? The answer is to always go to Jesus. In fact, this is what the book of Hebrews is all about. Don't abandon your faith in Jesus. The Jews were tempted to this because they thought they had it better when they could see the high priest decked out in this glorious attire. These royal colors. This gold sash. This this gold crown. Offering up these sacrifices that they could see. That they could touch. That they could smell. Before this glorious temple. All these visual aids they had. And now they have none of it. They don't see their high priest. And not only that, they're being persecuted for believing in this high priest that they don't see. They were tempted to go back. Is it really worth it? Is it really true? There's nothing like temptation and hardship that causes someone to question the reality of the faith. And perhaps some of you this morning have been tempted in this way to leave Jesus, to leave Christianity. It's not what you thought it was. You're not really sure it's worth it. And maybe the top reason you want to walk away is because Jesus doesn't really seem to understand or sympathize with you. A church is this context where you need to keep the rules, where you actually need to hide and not be real so that you're not condemned, where you have to be someone you're not, where you have to measure up. There's no sympathy. There's no understanding your weaknesses, understanding your temptations. Just keep the rules. Don't mess up. Make sure nobody sees your sin. Keep hiding and you'll be okay. Maybe that's the way you viewed church life. I have to hide my struggles in the church context, not be real about them. The the, the people that are sympathetic and real are those out there in the world. See, 
they're not going to condemn me for the struggles I have. But the, script, but the Scriptures say otherwise. And so what we see today are three reasons that we can always come to Jesus with great confidence. Three reasons we can always come to Jesus with great confidence. The first is access. The second is afflictions, His afflictions. And the third is acceptance. So first, this access. Verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So when the writer says, let us hold fast our confession, he's talking about the faith that we believe, the truth about Christ, the truth about Christianity, we must believe to be saved. And the reason he says our confession rather than just faith is because it is the common practice of Christians to confess their faith, to say out loud what they believe in their heart. It is part of the fabric of Christianity. It's part of how Christians practice their faith. We see this all the way back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6.4 with the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is something that Christians recited to that simple confession of faith that 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, Nobody can say apart from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And that means something. You don't just say it. It means something. It's confessing His ascension. It's confessing His virgin birth. It's confessing the truths about who He is. And this is why we even see Paul say in 1 Timothy 3, Great is the mystery of faith that we what? Not just believe, but we confess. Followed by a short early church creed. Christians have been in the habit and practice of confessing the faith in these short summaries. And this is actually how we encourage one another. Because as the Hebrew writer here says, let us hold fast that confession. What That's a strong word meaning cling to it. Let's hold on for dear life. Which means what? It's going to be hard to believe this. It's going to be hard at times, to hold on to it. And this is part of the reason why that we confess the faith together as a church in, in the afternoon service and something that we, in the near future, will be doing in the morning service. We encourage one another, and it's part of our practice of the faith. And one of the reasons for holding to this faith with confidence is, as verse 14 says, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, notice it doesn't say he went into heaven, which of course is true, but he passed through the heavens. That's the focus of this verse. And here's what the hearers in that day would have in mind. They would have in mind that tabernacle, that temple, which is with its three sections. You have the outer section, and then you have that first section that you would enter into through the veil called the holy place. And then there would be that second section, the most holy place within the second veil. And on the Day of Atonement, which we just covered in Leviticus 16, what they would see is they would see their high priest who would bring that blood into the most holy place. They would see him enter through that first veil. And that is symbolic of passing through the heavens. The heavens doesn't just mean the heaven of heavens, that place where God dwells, but, but even the skies above. And this is what our Lord Jesus Christ did when He offered up that sacrifice to make atonement for our sin. 
by the eternal spirit. He offered himself to God in that, not just the copies on earth, which is what the tabernacle was, but the true holy place. That is, he offered up himself to God for our sins, and God received that offering. And that is pictured in the tabernacle with the high priest entering that first section and then going into that second section. And Christ also passed through the heavens in his ascension. He ascended through the clouds all the way up into the heaven of heavens where God dwells in a special place with his people. And this is the reason that we can hold fast our confession because Jesus is the one who has done this. Who else has done this? Who else has entered that most holy place to offer up sufficient atonement by His blood? We may admire a lot of people in this world. We may look to other people for acceptance and love. But out of all of them, who has passed through the heavens to enter into that most holy place where He now intercedes for us, representing us so that we may draw near to God. Have you ever been invited to a party or, or an event that where you didn't know anybody? You're kind of scared to go because you didn't know anybody. I remember this actually in, in high school. I went to a, a public school. That's why sometimes you don't hear my English uh, spoken very Goodly. But I remember I had this class and I knew I wasn't I didn't know anybody. I wasn't one of those popular kids. And I was like dreading this class. And I walk into this class and who is there? My best friend. I can't tell you how much better that made it that my best friend was there and I was able to to take that class with him. It was a complete surprise. Perhaps you've been through this where you get invited to something and you're like, I don't know anybody. And man, that awkwardness. I'm going to be seen as an outcast. Perhaps people are going to judge me. And you're kind of fretting it because who wants to be an outcast? Who, who, who wants to have that isolation? But then let's say you learn that your best friend's going to be there. That makes things all the makes it better, doesn't it? But let's say this best friend of yours, who has your best interests at heart, is in a high position there and can represent you well before everyone. And not only that, but this best friend of yours is going to give you public honors before everybody. This is the way it is with our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus represents us before God in heaven. And so, we don't need to worry about condemnation. We don't need to worry about being an outcast because our friend and Savior Jesus is there who represents us before the throne of God. And not only that, on that day of judgment, we're not going to receive condemnation. We're going to see receive vindication of public acknowledgement that all our sins are forgiven, that we are received by God, that we are justified, that all our sins have been covered. We're going to receive public honors on that day before angels and men because of our friend 
the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to come to this event. We are all not just invited. We all must be there on that day of judgment. There's no avoiding it. But if Jesus is your friend, if He's your Savior, you will be safe. Since we have such access and representation with God in Christ, and only through Him alone. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast to our belief in Him. A second reason that we can always come to Jesus with great confidence has to do with His afflictions. It's true that Jesus is the exalted Son of God. He has passed through the heavens into the heaven of heavens and is now seated at the right hand of God. He is high, holy, transcendent, great, and glorious. That might lead some Christians to believe He's not really approachable in my struggles. Yeah, when I'm doing well, yeah, I can have confidence, but what about when I'm struggling? How can He understand that? He's in the comforts of heaven. He's he's receiving glory from the angels. He's victorious and risen and, and holy. Can He really sympathize with me while I'm here on earth struggling in weakness, in sin? Is He really even approachable? What confidence do I have to approach Him? And this is actually the very thing that the early church wrestled with. They saw Jesus as high and exalted, holy and exalted, which of course is true and correct. But they made an error in their conclusion when they said he can't be approached. He's holy. He's exalted. He's not sympathetic. But you know who is? His mother. I mean, mothers are motherly. They're gentle. They're approachable. They understand. And she's Jesus' mother. She can smooth things over with her son on our behalf. And you can see where this led, can't you? It led to her becoming the, the, the co-mediator, the, co, the co-mediatrix. That we need to go to her to get to him. And this then became solidified in the Roman Catholic Church, which holds to this even today. But all they had to do was read and believe verse 15, which says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So part of the reason we are to hold to our confession, to persevere in our faith, in believing in Jesus, having great confidence to come to Him, is not only because He is exalted and ascended in the heavens having passed through it, but because also He has experienced our lowly condition. Yes, He is in heaven with all the comforts and glories and worship, but He was also on earth and experienced our sufferings and our sorrows 
and he has not forgotten about them. He knows what it's like to be tried, to go through a hard time, to be discouraged, to be troubled in spirit. And he knows, therefore, what our condition is like. He can be sympathetic with our weaknesses. Notice that the verse does not say he relates to our strengths, but rather to our weaknesses, our, our infirmities, our struggles, what weighs us down. And this causes Jesus to be sympathetic. And just think about, and we're going to talk about this this, this evening, but think about some of the, the things he went through. He was abandoned. He was forsaken. He was treated as a crazy person. He was rejected as such. You have a demon. He was abandoned. He didn't have anyone to turn to. He was left all alone. Jesus can be sympathetic towards us. Now this word sympathetic here is composed of two Greek words. Soon, which means with. And pathos, which means to suffer, to have passions, to feel. It means to suffer with, to go through the same sufferings, to feel someone else's feelings, to be affected by something. Uh, John Owen defines uh, this word as to have a moving affection in ourselves upon the suffering of another. It can be summed up in our adage, I feel you. I feel your pain. I remember talking with a combat soldier who had been in battle years ago, and really uh, seen significant suffering, death, and, and destruction. And I, I tried to relate to him the best I could. And as much as I wanted to, I just couldn't. However, a friend of mine who had been through those experiences was able to. And the, the soldier, knowing that he was able to sympathize, actually caused him to open up all the more and share his struggles and sufferings. And brothers and sisters, this is the way it is with Jesus. Maybe the reason we don't want to go to Him, maybe the reason we don't go to Him in prayer right away upon our struggles is because we don't think He can understand. And so we're not open. We hide. We run to the world. The world's sympathetic. But not Jesus. He's holy. He'll just condemn me. But that's not the case. Jesus is sympathetic. He feels our pain. He understands what it is like. But oh, how hard this is to believe, isn't it? The holy, righteous, perfect, exalted Jesus who is coming back to judge and destroy sinners can sympathize with my weakness? How can this be? But the Scripture addresses our doubts with a double negative here. It says, no, you're mistaken. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. He is able to sympathize with us. He is affected by our sufferings. He is able to suffer with us. It does pain him and touch his heart. Why is this? Why is Jesus sympathetic? Why, does, why is Jesus able to suffer with us? Well, the verse goes on to say it's because He was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. 
our verse here says this is the proof that he's sympathetic. This is why he is sympathetic. It's because he is tempted as we are. Sympathy, feeling with, suffering with, being affected, is tied to being tempted, being tried, to undergoing trials, which means to undergo suffering. That's what a trial is. And this is what makes the incarnation so marvelous, so wonderful, and so necessary. This is because God Himself cannot be tempted, as James 1.13 says. Now when we read that, I think we automatically read something else. When we read God cannot be tempted, I think we read God cannot give into sin or give into temptation, that God can't sin. Which is true, of course. God cannot sin. God cannot be lured by any evil. But it says that God cannot be tempted, period. God is not tempted because, as James will go on to immediately say, God is unchangeable. There is no shadow of turning with Him. God cannot become anything other than who He already is. Now, some think God can't be tempted because He's righteous. And of course that is true. But is not Jesus altogether righteous? He had no sin in Him. But our verse says that whereas God is not tempted, Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, despite being fully righteous. You see, temptation happens not because one is not righteous, but because one is a creature and not God. I'm going to address this evening what Jesus' temptation consisted of, how it's different from ours. He wasn't lured by sin within But because God is not tempted, God does not suffer with us. The Hebrew writer here says the reason Jesus is sympathetic, suffers with us, is because he is tempted. He undergoes trials. He undergoes difficulty. But God cannot suffer. God is not tempted. What creature can possibly cause God? To suffer. Now, I know this may come at first as a surprise to many of us. And this is because in the 20th century, we've been told that God can suffer. Men like Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Jürgen Moltmann, you may have never heard them, but they have had profound influence on American evangelical and Baptist theology. That's because these were Germans, and they saw the atrocities of the Jewish Nazi camps. And they were trying to deal with that. And also at the time, the doctrine of of Christ was rather weak. Legalism was quite rampant. The What Would Jesus movement was in full swing. J. Gresham Machen writes of, the religious liberalism that was running rampant in that day. And if you've never read uh, Machen's work from the 1920s, Christianity and Liberalism, you ought to read it. It is still a, a classic today. He said this of religious liberalism. It's entirely in the imperative mood. That is, it's all about the law. It's all about what Jesus 
would do. They're not denying Jesus. They're questioning the historical Jesus. But they are talking all about what would he do and not what has he done. They talk all about the law to the exclusion of the gospel. And so similar to the early church that started to doubt Jesus' sympathy, what continues in Roman Catholicism today, this legalism left them wanting sympathy. Lying under the law, or living under the law, caused them to long for some sort of relief. And they found that relief in a God who can suffer. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Only a God who can suffer can help. And Jürgen Moltmann, who was just a staunch German liberal, declared to the Jews who asked, Where was God in our suffering? His famous reply is, God was right there suffering with you. In his book, The Crucified God, he wrote that God is one who suffers with his creation and is working out his own suffering in creation. And this has had profound impact in American evangelical and Baptist theology. It's become the dominant and assumed position, which is alarming. But it really undermines the doctrine of the Incarnation. It renders the doctrine of the Incarnation really unnecessary and not significant. Sympathy, suffering with, comes from going through temptations, as Hebrews 4 says. But God cannot be tempted. God does not suffer with us because He is not tempted as we are. But hear me carefully. This does not mean that God does not infinitely know God can know apart from a medium of experiencing it through creation. God infinitely cares and knows and loves us. In fact, it was because of that eternal love that He sent His Son to assume humanity in order to suffer for and with us, to be tempted. This is the God of glory. This is the God who, as Job 35, 6 says, if you have sinned, what do you accomplish against Him? And if, you, if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to Him? Now, does that mean that sin is nothing? That we shouldn't take sin seriously? That God won't judge sin? No, of course not. So what does the Bible mean then when it says, when you sin, what do you do to Him? You don't affect him. You don't cause him to suffer. You don't take anything away from him. You don't diminish his blessedness, his eternal happiness. And neither do we increase anything. As the next verse says in Job, if you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what, do you, what does he receive from your hand? As the great reformer Wilhelmus Albrockel said, no one can add or subtract anything from him. Neither can anyone increase or decrease his happiness. You know why? Because God is not like us. God is not dependent on us. All things are from him, through him, not through the creature. All things are from him, through him, and to him, so that we do not increase his happiness as if anything was from us. Neither can we decrease or take anything from God 
whose life and blessedness is fully from himself. And we tend to think that God created because he lacked or needed something. When I first became a Christian 15 years ago, I used to listen to Christian radio. And this is all I heard. God, he would rather die than ever live without you. He needed to create because he just couldn't be without you. God was lacking something. God needed more of something, so he made creation. He needs you. He needs us. Where would, where would he be without us? We add something to him. That's, I heard this all over Christian radio. I had a professor at my nominal Christian college teach that God had to create because he was lacking. He needed us. But creation does not exist because God lacked or needed anything. Creation exists as a pure, benevolent act by the free will of God. Not because he was forced, because he lacked. And so while God is fully aware and infinitely knows our suffering, he does not suffer with us. He can't lack anything, including in his blessedness and happiness, so that he is made to suffer. But Jesus in his humanity, because of the incarnation, suffers with us. We needed a high priest who was like us in order to represent us before God. Man had sinned, and so we need a man to represent us. But that human high priest also needed to know what it was like to go through sufferings, to be sympathetic with us erring, weak people. And so Jesus, who is a human, like us in every way, because he needed to be sympathetic, learned suffering the way we do through creaturely experience. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to be hungry. God in himself doesn't know what it's like to be hungry, even though he infinitely knows when we are hungry. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. God in himself doesn't know what it's like to be thirsty. Jesus knows what it's like to be weary. God in himself doesn't grow weary, Isaiah 40 says. Jesus knows what it's like to be troubled to the point of death. You think God's ever troubled? You think he's ever scared of anything? You think he's ever discouraged? Does he lack? Does he suffer once? Jesus, though, knows what it's like to suffer abandonment in the wrath of God. He truly does suffer with us because he knows what it's like to be weak like we are. He became weak and poor in order to be sympathetic with our sufferings. The God who could not suffer came to suffer in his humanity. To end, John Owen says of this in a very beautiful way, Such was the unspeakable love of Christ to his brothers, that he would refuse nothing, no condition that was needful to fit him for the, dis the discharge of the work which he had undertaken for them. He knew what this would cost him, what trouble, sorrow, suffering in that conformity to them he must undergo, what miseries he must conflict with all his life, what woeful temptations he was to pass through, 
all lay open and naked before him. But such was his love, shadowed out for us by that of Jacob to Rachel, that he was content to submit unto any terms, to undergo any condition, so that he might save and enjoy his beloved bride. Brothers and sisters, we can approach him with confidence, even in our weakness, because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. And this is why the incarnation is of great and preeminent importance. And this evening we'll pick up with the rest of our points. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we are so grateful that you are our rock, that you are not unstable, that you are a God who cannot be tempted or suffer, and therefore you are that eternal and blessed rock, that we as creatures do not have any power to, rock, to take from you. When we sin, what do we do to you? Neither do we have the power to increase you. If we are righteous, what do we do? You have your blessedness in and of yourself. You are, as Romans 1.25 says, eternally blessed, eternally happy. You have life in and of yourself and derive none of it for, from the creature. You are that great I am. You are that great I am who in eternal love sent your Son to suffer with us, to be sympathous. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that while you cannot be tempted, you sent your son to put on a human nature that he might be tempted and suffer in all ways that we are yet without sin. Father, may we stand in awe of Jesus in light of this. May we grow in our love for him as we consider these truths. May we draw near to you because you are sympathetic in Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we actually have a picture of the incarnation in the Lord's Supper because the bread represents a body which the Son took on upon Himself, which was also broken. It su he suffered. He, he suffered a violent death for us. And it also pictures that he not only suffered for us, but is sympathetic. And a cup that represents blood. You know, that means that he took on a human body. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com dot com